Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times. Looking back over my recent columns for the FT, I seem to be writing an awful lot about war. This week's columns about an array of conflicts involving Turkey, Russia and Saudi Arabia that extend from Libya to Armenia. Next week, I'll probably be writing about the threat of war over Taiwan. And in recent months, I've also written about a deadly clash on the Chinese-Indian border and about the UN's efforts to negotiate a global ceasefire from Afghanistan to Mali. My guest this week is an expert on the origins, nature and consequences of warfare. She's Margaret Macmillan, Professor of History at Oxford and Toronto Universities and author of a new book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us. So will war always be with us? And what might a future global conflict look like? I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. I have to tell you now, this country is at war with Germany. The reedy voice of the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, announcing the outbreak of World War II in 1939, continues to echo down the years. If Chamberlain sounded downbeat, even despairing, it's hard to blame him. His generation had lived through a terrible conflict just over 20 years beforehand. The mass slaughter of the First World War was justified by the hopeful claim that it would prove to be the war to end all wars. But of course, that wasn't the case. There was the Second World War, and ever since, a roll call of major conflicts. Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. And while America currently seems to be going through a phase of war weariness, some observers of international relations are worried by a belligerent mood in the world's rising power, China. Margaret Macmillan's author of two of my favourite history books, The War That Ended Peace, which is a history of the outbreak of the First World War, and Paris 1919, which is about the Versailles Peace Conference. So I was eager to talk to her about her new book on war. We've discussed the threat of new conflicts and also how warfare might evolve. But when I got her on the line from Oxford, I started by asking Professor Macmillan if she thinks that war has always been hardwired into human society. The evidence seems to be that really once we began organising ourselves into groups, clearly defined groups, whether by religion or, or family or whatever, And particularly once we settled down and became agriculturalists, we tended to fight each other because we had something to defend and something we might want to take from someone else. And so the archaeological evidence is that we were building fortifications very early on once we began to become farmers. And also they have found graves and they're now able to date the bodies in the graves much more accurately thanks to advances in science. And they found graves with people's corpses that appear to bear the marks of violent death 
systematic death and it looks like the weapons have been used. And if that goes back to what we might almost call prehistory, how about those sort of philosophers and anthropologists who at times have theorized that actually war isn't intrinsic to human society, that uh, maybe there was a state of nature where people were peaceable or that there are secluded societies where war wasn't a feature. Is there much evidence for that? We certainly know that people can live together and, and often behave very altruistically to each other and live together peaceably. But what anthropologists and others have done is look at the remaining hunter-gatherer peoples in the world. And that, of course, is tricky because they've obviously been affected by their contact with others. But those who've remained in what presumably was the state of our far distant ancestors as, as hunters and gatherers often seem to fight each other. Um, you know, this idea that there's this sort of paradise that exists somewhere in New Guinea or somewhere in the, in the center of the Amazon jungle doesn't seem to be true at all. I mean, all the evidence is from people who studied and worked and lived with such peoples is that they can be as aggressive as, as the rest of us. In fact, even more so. I mean, the Yanomani Brazilians, for example, have a very high uh, mortality rate amongst their young men, yeah? Indeed. I mean, much higher than in some of the most dangerous cities in the world. And the same is true of the many tribes living in the highlands of New Guinea. Um, you know, the idea that they all live in harmony is simply not true. And the death rate among men is very high indeed. And quite often women, as so often happened in the past, will get kidnapped and carried off and, and taken by the victorious group. What about the reverse of the argument, the one that's associated, I think, particularly with Steven Pinker, the American academic, that actually as society gets more sophisticated, it becomes more peaceable and that we're growing out of war. Is there any evidence for that? Well, I'd like to think so, but I think the evidence is mixed. I mean, Pinker is looking at the changes that have taken place in a lot of societies. And it is true, I think, a lot of societies in the West, for example, tolerate violence much less than they used to. But there's a difference, I think, between violence, the random sort of violence and the sort of brawls in the street and hitting your neighbor over the head because you get into a fight over the fence, and the sort of purposive of violence, which really is what war is. I mean, war is not random violence. War is one of the most organized and purposive of all human activities. When you think of the discipline and the organization that it takes to actually get a group of people to go into war and risk their lives, you, you, know, you just have to realize how, how organized it is. And we have been, I think, through history and continue to be, quite good at exerting influence and violence on other people through weapons. And I think if we look around the world, there are an awful lot of wars at the moment, which doesn't suggest to me at all that war is vanishing from the face of the earth. I mean, the wars going on in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, parts of Africa, shooting perhaps won't develop into war. I certainly hope not between India and China on their border. The recent outbreak of violence between Azerbaijan and Armenia. It seems to me that we still, many of us, are prepared to resort to war to try and achieve our ends. Okay, final stab at optimism then. How about the idea that the really destructive wars, the world wars of the 20th century, that we might not see those again simply because nuclear weapons have made them too dangerous? And it is striking, isn't it, that the Soviet Union and the US did not fight directly. And it's becoming increasingly relevant, I guess, as we see another superpower competition taking shape between China and the United States. I mean, of course, we're in the realm of prediction, but do you feel that nuclear wars have made those big-scale world wars less likely? I would say that nuclear war made big-scale wars less likely, certainly during the Cold War, because there were very few nuclear powers, and the United States and the Soviet Union between them possessed the overwhelming proportion of nuclear power. And they did maintain this balance, which had the wonderful acronym of MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction, which meant there was no point going to war with the other side because they would destroy you as well, just as much as you destroyed them. 
But we still came awfully close in the Cold War. I'm inclined to be an optimist, but there are times when I look at just how nearly we went to war in the Cold War. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the tension after the shooting down of KL-007 in, in 1983. You know, we came close, and there were accidents too. You know, there was a bear that climbed over a fence in the Midwest, and people thought that was possibly a Soviet attack. So I think we have to be a bit wary. And what worries me now, of course, is nuclear proliferation. A number of states either have nuclear weapons or are trying to get them, and, and I don't see that stopping anytime soon. I suspect we won't see the great mass wars that we saw of the 20th century because we have other sorts of weapons and other sorts of ways of hitting the homeland of the enemy and hitting the armed forces of the enemy. But I don't think we should rule out war completely. I mean, I think the danger always is that countries will get themselves into a position and they'll, the rhetoric will go up and then pride will be at stake and their national interests will be at stake. And they may get themselves into positions where it becomes more difficult to back down. And I'm a great believer in, in accidents happening. Uh, you know, I don't think all of history is accident, but I think there are times you can see that accident really does make a difference. You read a great book on the origins of the First World War, which is a comparison that people often make now, but with the US-China rivalry, a one established power, the United States, and a rising power, you perhaps loosely compared with Britain and Germany at the time. And in that war, as far as we can tell, neither side was determined to go to war, but they kind of got dragged into it by accident. Well, I think it was an accident. I mean, 1914, you know, at the beginning of the year, Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, said, the scene has never looked so calm. And he said later on, you know, if anyone had told me in January 1914 that we'd have a war by the summer of 1914, I wouldn't have believed them. And I think it's quite possible that if Europe had got through 1914, the international scene would have changed. Britain and Germany were always talking to each other. They were always hoping to mend their differences. And there was a possibility that France and Austria-Hungary might mend fences. And it didn't happen because of the accident of the Archduke getting assassinated. And it escalated extremely quickly. It only took a month for Europe to go from peace to fallout war. So I don't think war is by any means inevitable, but I think you sometimes get an accident which will trigger something. And a current sort of parallel today might be the, the fate of Taiwan. And the Chinese government is behaving much more aggressively now, at least in language, when it talks about Taiwan. And it's also been doing military exercises around Taiwan and overflying Taiwan or flying very close to Taiwan's airspace. And the question will be, what will the United States do if the Chinese actually decide they will make a move? They might try and invade Taiwan. What will the United States do? Or what would happen if an American ship bumped into a Chinese ship or vice versa? I mean, they've come pretty close in the South China Seas recently. What happens then? I mean, the rhetoric goes up, public opinion gets engaged, and governments often find themselves pushed into dead ends, which it is very hard for them to get out of. And I guess the danger, again, looking back to previous parallels, is of miscalculation that if the Chinese were, say, to look at the situation in Taiwan now, look at the United States, very uh, riven by domestic political controversy, and might think, well, we can take a risk. Exactly. And I think there was something of that calculation in the summer of 1914. I mean, certain people in the German government and the German high command assumed the British wouldn't come into war, even if France was attacked by Germany, which was part of the German military plans, because the British were preoccupied with what was going on in Ireland. And there was real concern, as you know, in Britain, that there might be a civil war. And so I do think people miscalculate. And, and what really becomes dangerous is when people begin to read the intentions of the other side and get them wrong. And I mean, if you're an ascendant great power or um a country such as modern China, which aspires to a much bigger place on the world stage. I mean, historically, has it taken 
a war really to mark transitions between great powers and which power is the dominant power? And how do we do that without a war? Well, I don't think that wars always have to mark this. And, and so I don't really fully buy that argument. They call it the Thucydides trap. You know, when he says in the Peloponnesian War that Sparta feared the rising power of Athens and so decided to go to war. And I don't think it's a predictive model. I think it can happen. But we have examples of rising and declining powers coming to terms. I mean, the United States was a rising power at the end of the 19th century, and the British were extremely concerned about it. And there was real tension between the US and Britain in the Americas. And in the 1890s, there was a real crisis over Venezuela's borders. And there was talk of war, and there were headlines in, in newspapers in both Washington and, and London. And calmer heads on both sides thought, this is silly. And they came to a deal, and so it went on. And so I don't think a rising power necessarily will go to war with a declining power or vice versa. I think it matters who's in charge. It matters what sort of statesmanship or statespersonship you have. It matters what sort of engagement that you have and how much you're prepared to talk. But I mean, Germany has become extremely powerful in Europe since the Second World War, at least economically and, and politically. But you don't have any hint that there's likely to be an armed conflict between Germany and any of its neighbors who might feel threatened by that. So, well, we found something optimistic then. So powers can indeed rise without conflict. I think so, absolutely. What about then the argument, which again you address in your most recent book, about how integral war has been to social change? Obviously a lot of suffering in its train, but also important changes in society. I mean, for example, the role of women, again, partly through the, the First World War, transformed by their need for their labour. It's something that makes us quite rightly, I think, uncomfortable to think about. And when I raise this, and I, I do in lectures and so on, I, I get people saying, how can you say that war is a good thing? And I'm saying it's not a good thing, but it sometimes has unintended consequences. And one of the unintended consequences of certainly major wars is it can make a real difference to the position of hitherto oppressed or marginalized groups in society. And, and you mentioned women, and it's a very good example. I mean, the position of women did change in a number of countries, including Britain, as a result of the First World War. I think women would have taken longer to get the vote if it hadn't been for the First World War. And even before the war ended in January 1918, the British government brought in a bill to extend the franchise to all men, which meant extending it to the working class men and to women over the age of 30. And it was very important. It was very much a recognition that both the working classes and women had played a very important part in the war effort. And what war has also done, of course, is speed up development of things like medicines, medical practice, speed up inventions, which have benefited us all in peacetime. It's also, in certain cases in the 20th century, as, as Walter Scheidel and, and Thomas Piketty have argued, it has also served to have a leveling effect in society, to compress the differences between the rich and the poor. And this, I think, we most of us have recognized as beneficial. Of course, we wouldn't choose to have a war to do this, but it is one of the many things about war that I find paradoxical is that it sometimes produces results that do benefit large numbers of people in peacetime. And I mean, at a time when gender is right at the centre of political debate, I thought it was interesting reading your book because it made me think how much ideas of masculinity have over the centuries been very closely associated with warfare. You're so right. And I think it seems to me to support the argument that the causes of wars are cultural rather than biological that it's the culture that produces ideas of masculinity and, and femininity. And in so many cultures down through history, you, you do see what you just referred to, this idea that to be truly masculine, you must be brave, 
You must be prepared to sacrifice your life. You must be prepared to go out and fight. You should, of course, be prepared to go and fight to defend those at home, to defend your women and children. And probably, I mean, you know, I don't know how you do a calculation, but I would say well over 99% of those who fought throughout history have been men. Now, that I think is probably largely cultural because we've seen examples of women who fought, the individual women throughout history who've disguised themselves as men to go off and fight, but also groups of women. And it used to be thought that the Amazons were sort of something that the Greeks used to terrify themselves with, this awful idea that you had these ferocious women, um, sort of a myth that they frightened themselves with. But in fact, they found tombs around the North Shore of the Black Sea, which show women, and they can now apparently tell what the skeleton is, whether it's male or female skeleton. They found women buried in full armor, and also the skeletons bearing the marks of what looked like wounds in battle. And there were the famous Dahomey Amazons in the 18th and 19th century, who were the bodyguard of the King of Dahomey, and according to those who encountered them, including French soldiers, absolutely formidable fighters. And today, women are going into armed forces, no longer just in support roles, which is where they used to be confined, but increasingly into combat roles. And they seem to be performing as well as men. And so I suspect, again, you know, this is a debate that will go on, that the reason women haven't fought much is probably largely cultural. So, as you say, women are now increasingly in the armed forces and in the front line. But I wonder whether they're, perhaps fortunately for them, their period in the front line will be relatively brief, simply because wars fought by humans and human armies may begin to be a thing of the past. I mean, you mentioned when we were talking earlier, the current conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Gorno Karabakh and reading accounts of that, it sounds like drone warfare, unmanned drones were very important there and everyone's investing in those. Do you think the whole nature of war, I mean, it's traditionally always been changed by technology, but we are going to be looking increasingly at artificial intelligence and and robots uh, fighting wars? I think so. And I think this is the sort of one of the developments of war, that it is moving into this very high-tech region. And you don't need massive numbers of troops on the ground necessarily to take on the enemy. But what it seems to me is you are still going to see wars in which the civilians on the other side are attacked. And the civilians are going to continue to bear a lot of the costs of war, as they always have done. I mean, what's been happening in the fighting around Nagorno-Karabakh has been that it's been civilians who've been targeted. The civilian buildings have been hit and civilians have been killed. And I think we're also going to continue to see the sorts of wars, you know, in the old expression that you need boots on the ground, that if you look at how the coalition forces fought in Iraq after the invasion, they were down on the ground and they were going into towns and villages and often fighting urban war. And it's something the military apparently are spending a lot of attention on these days is the prospect of urban war. And of course, more and more of us are living in cities so what I suspect, but you know, who knows, I may be proved wrong in 20 years, what I suspect is we may see the very high-tech war with drones of various sides. I mean, from drones the size of bees to drones the size of a jet liner and the use of artificial intelligence. And so very high-tech war, but we may continue to see the sorts of struggles on the ground with one set of fighters against another set of fighters. And those are going to be like the ones we see today in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And I suspect they're going to go on. Mm. And just a last thought. I mean, I wonder whether the winner, the likely winners of future wars will be those who anticipate these technological changes first or when the war breaks out or the first to get going on developing the technology. Because thinking of the two great conflicts of the 20th century, you know, obviously in the beginning of the First World War, a lot of people were committed still to cavalry 
And, you know, I, I sometimes wonder whether aircraft carriers are the cavalry of our era that may turn out to be obsolete. I do wonder that myself, but I suppose what you have to ask about aircraft carriers is, is what are you using them for? And it may be that they no longer have a role in combat, but they have a role in projecting power. I mean, an aircraft carrier never goes on its own. It goes with submarines underneath, it goes with aircraft ahead, it goes with destroyers and, and minesweepers around. I mean, it is a formidable force. And so for projecting power, if you want to intimidate, I mean, if, if Greece and Turkey, for example, were to get even more tense than they already are, I mean, the use of aircraft carrier groups by NATO powers might in fact have the effect of deterring them. So I think it depends what you're using them for. But I suspect we're not going to see a war like the First and Second World War again, and, and we're not going to see mass numbers of troops, and we're not going to see huge quantities of weapons. I suspect far more we're going to see the high-tech weapons being used, and war is moving into space. We're going to see space being used as a way of waging war. So clearly, research, which has always been important, but I think has been growing in importance, is going to be more important than ever before, because it's really going to be one country's science and technology against another country's science and technology. And on that thought, I guess one would guess the United States is still more technologically advanced. But one of the things that seems to have really made the Americans anxious is the sense that the Chinese science base and their expertise in things like artificial intelligence is getting better very fast. Very fast indeed. And I think there was an article actually in the FT which pointed this out, that a number of Chinese universities are moving into the first rank when it comes to science. And Chinese scientists more and more are publishing the sorts of peer-reviewed research and articles, which is an indication that you're really doing top-notch research. And so, yes, I think that's true. And also the Chinese are spending a great deal more than they were on their military establishment. I mean, I forget by how much Chinese military spending has gone up since 2002, but it is considerable. And so you have two very large military establishments, which are, of course, investing heavily in science and technology. Okay, well, with that thought, we'll, we'll have to leave it. But thanks very much, Margaret McMillan, for a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I couldn't be more optimistic and cheerful. You did your best. That was Margaret McMillan in Oxford, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. I do hope you'll be able to join us again next week. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.